0: Please welcome
1: Guglielmo Tiango.
0: Thank you. Right. Uh, yeah. So good to see you all. Uh, but have you got my phone? Oh, okay. Because I, I keep on losing things recently. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, now. Uh, I first want to introduce my wife, Jerry. wife, She's, She's, She's the one who drove me here, and she had the wisdom to make us come here first, instead of going to the hotel first. Otherwise, it would have been even more late than we are, so we apologize, but at the same time, I appreciate that she was able to drive me across from Irvine to here. Of course, we chose the wrong time in terms of when to leave in about four o'clock. it has been traffic, literally, all the way, yeah, right. Now, I'm a little bit nervous reading from my recent memoir, because actually it's the first time I'm reading it loudly, I, uh, so I don't know how it feels like to read from it in public. So, you're my first audience uh, for the new novel. I was a new, not novel, but a uh, memoir. And the, for me, it's a very, very important memoir in this respect, personally, uh, because it describes the moment I became a writer, or rather, how I woke into writing. To set the setting a little bit. Uh, I was born in Kenya, as you are told, in 1938, Uh, and Kenya was a British settler colony, meaning that there were white people who settled there. So the land was always a bone of contention in Kenya, as it was actually in all settler colonies in Africa, Algeria, Zimbabwe, and elsewhere. And when I left Kenya in 1959 from a carrier Uganda, it you was know, in the midst of war, what pe- many people know as Mau Mau, war of liberty against the British, but the real name of the movement is Kenya Land and Freedom Army. But the British didn't want to use that title because if you use that title, the, the aims of the movement are very, very clear, land and freedom. So they came up with this word, Mao Mao, which has no meaning in any language I know of, right? <laughs> which creates a sense of this mumbo-jumbo, mystical something, irrationality, and now you can't quite explain, okay? Yeah, so in this memo, I've restored the original name of the movement, as Land and Freedom Army, but really, you know, uh, popular, known as Mao uh, Mau. So I'm, my brother was in the mountains fighting against the British. I got this offer to go to Makere University College. I've described all these events in my earlier two memoirs, uh, Dreams in a Time of War and in the House of the Interpreter. So this is the third memoir in the series. When I go to college to Uganda, Uganda was also a British colony but the the type they called protectorate it It just meant that it was was still a colony but there was no settler Uh, it was not settled by white people it it was just a colony like any other colony so land was never an issue so you can imagine I just want you to imagine me leaving Kenya and going to a land of, literally, black people. <laughs> by this I mean, although Kenya is a land of black people, but I've grown up with white settlers and so Indian people and so But I go to Kampala, and it's completely dominated by black presence. You know, and it just really feels something really... I don't know even how to describe it, today, how it felt like to just walk around, you know, and not... Uh, See, the Kenyan settlers used to walk around with their guns, you know, like cowboys a little bit. They had a soga and carried guns and so on. But there I didn't see anybody carrying any guns. The Indian shopkeepers and Africans were mixing really freely. I mean, not, they didn't see any particular demarcation. Whereas in Kenya of my time, the Indian community, by law, African community by law were completely separated, okay? So I go to this new uh, environment and it became my awakening. So the way I frame this memoir is this. I entered my career in 1959 as a colonial subject and I left in 1964 that's when I graduated, as a citizen. So it's a kind of from subject to citizen. But it also coincides with my own sort of awareness as a writer. So my coming of age coincides, if you like, with the coming of age of new nations and so on. So the framing. But it's a wonderful moment for me because, again, just to... uh, just summarize very quickly before I come to a little. But it's a period when I was doing my first, my first degree, right? In, I was an English student, English literature. Uh, but by the time, I, within that period, I had two novel manuscripts, which later became known as the River Between and Weep No Child. I had a major play, The Black Hermit, you know. I had about ten short stories published, and I written about eight pieces <laughs> of journalism okay uh, and all these things I'm doing as a regular student uh in my career, eh? so for me, it's a moment really of awakening It's like a new world is actually opening for me so with that. You know, I'm going to read a few pieces here and there just to try to, and to, to capture that uh, moment. The moment I want to capture first of all is the uh, moment I arrived in McElroy. McElroy College used to be the overseas college of the University of London. There were many of them uh, founded by the British colonial government around the 1950s with a view that maybe in the future, these countries might become independent or something, and we must create an, an elite that we can work with a partnership in the future. So there was University of West Indies, there was uh, Ibadan in Nigeria, uh, University of Ghana in Ghana, Makere in Uganda, and in Malaysia there was one, and I think Hong Kong. Anyway, so there's a series of them. So Makere was part of that. The first thing that struck me when I went to Macquarie eh, were students wearing gowns. Eh? <laughs> and my memoir has a lot of pictures this time. <laughs> and I should have mentioned the University of Sierra Leone also, also by the way. right? <laughs> yeah, wearing gowns. Students wear red gowns and faculty black gowns. So everyone looking around, you see those reds and blacks on the hill. Okay? The other thing we went through was a series of um, uh, initiations uh, into new life as students. Okay, I don't mention all the rites of passage, but I want to mention one, which is a little bit. uh, Yeah, there is some seats. Yeah, let me try. And you can hear me? No problem, okay. Uh, I'll not mention all the rites, but this one will be very familiar. Maybe all of you who have gone through this stage in my life, you know, I'm 22 or 21 or 22, 23, 25 there about, 26 I think, yeah. So, uh, there are other rites of passage, social mostly, but nothing would beat my first night at a social evening in Northcourt Hall. Sh- let me explain. Students lived in halls of residence because my was modeled on Cambridge and uh, Oxford, OK? Mine was called Northcourt Hall. I would later learn that each hall organized its socials at different times. I assumed that it was some kind of after-dinner party with students playing cards, chairs, checkers, and probably table tennis. Or maybe a concert evening with students performing jokes and stories. I should really have asked my seniors, but even then, nothing would ever have prepared me for the night. It was not simply the transformation of the dining hall into a dance arena that fast ignited the excitement but even more the sight of a real, a real live band on stage normally occupied by the high table and apparently every social included live music more often than not one of the students' bands, and so on. Okay, uh, and they would improvise instruments and so on—a guitar here, some other things there. Okay, uh, but this was a different thing altogether. But on this night, Northcott had attracted a band from town. Northcotters, all men, were the first to arrive. Some in three piece, suits, but nearly all in ties and bow ties. I used to wear one actually. Mm (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, North court, okay. And then suddenly the excitement. Buses carrying ladies Mostly nurses from Mulago and Mango Hospitals had arrived, and the ladies trooped in. The pattern I would little learn never changed, year in, year out. Only the players changed, graduations replaced by new animations. The girls would be brought in there in rented buses, stay for the duration of the dance party, and then be taken back to their lairs in a hospital. Don't be fooled. The ladies were not in white the ladies were not in a white uniform of nurses, and the scent that filled the air had nothing in common with the smell of hospital. Atalance, the square came from, the nearest to this glamorous presence where the Scottish country dances, on grass lawns, in the village, it had been the feet of young men in their everyday, in huts hats late with paraffin lamps, raising dust by themselves. So few women there, there were who would venture to such places at night. One guitar, one or two human voices provided music. Men would dance in pairs. That's the village. Would dance in pairs, but so, mostly it was solo versus solo in moves that were more acrobatic than the feline motions on a ballroom floor. And now, here at Macare here, this high-heeled gowns of mango and Mulago in low cut, in low cut of half-sleeved and sleeveless dresses, skirts adorned with shimmering beads, necks bedecked with the glittering jewelry. The looks of sheer delight on suited men who hold them close in warts, tango, and foxtrot. Oh, the grace of solemn pairs gliding on the floor. After every dance, the men would lead their glamorous partners back to the seats against the four walls. Men. Remained standing in groups waiting for the next dance. Then suddenly, the groups would break up, individuals gliding toward the walls to ask for a dance from a different lady. Please picture this. The lady is sitting against the wall, and the man, of course, when it comes, you go and ask for a dance, okay? The problem was with the neophytes. With the neophytes, also sat. All in groups watching all this and daring each other to be the first to make a move. The ladies never seemed to say no, and they all came here to dance, collect guests of us, the collective hosts, so why not play our role? It took some time before one of us gathered the courage to approach the glamorous presence. The success of the first one to break the self imposed inhibition emboldened the others. Now, I had not taken into account the possibility of my nose becoming captive to the scent of perfume, and my eyes that of what showed just above the low cuts. I fought back the desire to simply stand and stare, and so instead of trying to keep up with moves I knew nothing about, I was soon stepping on my partner's feet. When the dance was over, she did not wait for me to escort her back to her seat. (laughs) Later, when we, the neophytes, exchanged reviews, I was struck by the similarities of our experience. Stepping on the feet of our partners was a the common theme. There was a sheer embarrassment afterwards when we tried to go back for another dance with our previous victims and they froze us with icy looks or a slight shake of the head <laughs> or by suddenly looking down or talking admittedly to the neighbor at our approach. Clearly, we all suffered from the same malady. The seniors told us of the cure. Makere Ballroom Dancing Association. So of all the clubs and associations on, on the hill, Mabada had the largest membership. The best part was the dance lessons the seniors offered new members. The dances, I discovered, were not in the free wheeling style of our village dances. These were very formalized affairs, from posture, where and how to stand, to count the steps to the left, to the right, forward. Initially, we practiced with pillows, holding them as if they were our partners. <laughs> then came the pairing, one man being the pilot and the other being the piloted in by turns. Eventually, we were ready for the first trial of our skills. And now this, that is not in the social hall, it's in the big hall for the entire university. It was a Mambada organized event at the main hall. Everything about the event, open to all, was in every way larger and more daunting than anything that we had seen in the halls. This time the ladies came from all the women's centers, mostly hospitals, in and around Kampala. Faculty too. Many came partnered with wives, husbands, or girlfriends. The sitting areas were all outside the dancing hall in the open. My first night of dance at a Mambada graduate as a Mambada graduate was also a test case of nerve and footwork. Once again, it was the waltz, tango, and foxtrot that dominated the floor. It was so exhilarating to dance without stepping on your partner's feet, kind of triumph. Then suddenly comes samba or rock and roll, and statuesque pairs break loose. But it's the lingala music from the Congo. That finally conquers the ballroom part of McKellar Ballroom Dancing Association. Bodies become loose and float and fly as if seeking freedom from, from gravity. Even there, even then, there were still a few things to learn. If three or more ladies sit at the same table and the one first rejects your hand then don't ask the others for they will certainly say no. So you go to a different table farthest from the scene of the first rejection and try your luck there. Nothing personal, just the playing out of group dynamics. Having mastered the ins and outs and formalities of the social evening and the McCray dance floor, it was time to test what one was made of by going now to the nightclub in town. Top Life, Nyamengo, and the Susana in a were the most important. The social evening had been confined to hall membership. The Mambada dances attracted the elite in and outside the Makere Hill, but the nightclub brought together the mighty and the low, Makere and the city, the partnered and unpartnered, the resident. Our visiting visiting bird was bigger with a whole array of instruments. Neon lights added to the intimacy, mystery, and wonder. This was the real thing. Triumphant notes of the trumpet, saucy sex sounds of the saxophone, cymbals, piano, xylophone, maraca rattles, and drum beats. Guitar strings from the bass to soprano, spring, surprise. Haunting calls of horns and clarinet. They talk, they challenge, they moan. Sometimes they go sorrow. each taking the center, the other supporting. Then all come together and cry and groan and scream. Body captives, body captives of sound massed together on the floor. Winged with the desire, they swing, sway, sweat, and soon, oh, 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 step up this step, oh, 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 this step must never stop, oh, 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 cigarette smoke and stale smell of beer cover bodies crooning in corners, but soon... Too soon, or so it seems, the sound fades to silence. Reluctant, Relaxed bodies saunter to their seats. They laugh and shout and whisper and drink. Hearts throb for the next round or the sound in sync. Friday or Saturday nights were the best for night clubbing. One had a whole Sunday to nurse a hangover, and for the religiously inclined, to attend chapels or church or mosque to seek forgiveness for sins committed under the influence. Yeah. So this, I'm just giving a sense of my career, social life, but really uh, the memoir is not really about that. I just want you to get a sense of how it was like. The, my journey to writing really begins with rejection of my play called This Wound in My Heart. It happened that at McCarrady's inter interhall competition it was called English competition with each hall sort of competing in plays short stories and each play that won overall would eventually end at Kampala National Theatre so that was the attraction of really winning one of those events. Your own play will end up there. And it so happened that when I tried the first year, mine became not so good. But the next year, mine, the wound in heart, won. So the memoir actually opens with that experience. Or my play winning and I'm expecting that it be performed at the national theater right is it always happened right except in my case there was silence. I asked what's going on some of the professors and nobody wanted to tell me really exactly why this was not so then I Learned later that the British Council, who are controlling the National Theatre, objected to my play because, in the play, there's a very small scene, it's not even acted out, it's mentioned uh, that a Mao captive, uh, captured by the British, goes to concentration camp. When he returns home after many years and so on, he finds his wife had been. Raped by a British officer, right? My explanation is that a British officer could not do such a thing. Yeah. And so this sets me in the memories how this begins to a stream of consciousness. I'm thinking, I look, I look back to Kenya, I look back what I had experienced in Kenya, and so on, and you find all that there. So theater dominates the writing of theater, particularly my first major play, The Black Hermit, you know, dominates dominates this memoir. So I want to read one or two sections do the play that eventually I wrote. So my first major entry into literary world was actually through theater. And The Black Hermit, which I wrote was probably the Actually, it was the first major play written by any East African Ugandan, Kenyan, or Tanzanian in English. So my mind was the first, but I did not know. <laughs> I was not trying to be first. We were trying to just do something to celebrate Uganda's independence. Okay, and. Even then, we encountered a few problems, but I won't go, it's all here in the, in this particular, in the memoir. But I want to share with you a few, funny, you know, drama is a very, very interesting experience because it's a community affair, literally, you have to, it's more cooperative of ventures, you know, you, there's no play which is, can be successful without the, Input of everybody, from the person who is moving the chair to the person who is reminding people about their lines, to everybody, really, it's not a one, it's an individual uh, enterprise. Huh? Uh, but in every theatre that I've been involved in, the <laughs> there's always a crisis. There's the first you begin to telling me you are very excited, then you go there's a crisis, then look as if we are going to break up in the middle somehow or other. It is resolved, like a short story with the beginning, and the middle, you know, and then the resolution, you know. Huh? Right. Um, so, let me just, i never gone through a whole production, even for my one-act dramas, without running into a crisis. It's probably in the nature of theater, where so many individuals and egos are working together, learning that theater is the original all for one and one for all, <clears throat> but the black hermit production. But the black, but in the black hermit production, I was most surprised by the quarter from which the crisis came, the timing, and uh, making it in, in more intensely felt. Now, just because my career, my career had black students, had also Asian students. And a sprinkling of white students. And in the memoir, I described the invasion of Makere by, by Americans. It was a literary invasion. it was very interesting. It teaches the dynamics of the whole campus. But uh, now, <coughs> now Pat, let me just explain another thing. We call the girls from Makere boxers. And when I went there, the word boxer. I oh, said, so there's a boxer. Well, that bit scary. So you meet a girl. They're boxers. And so you, say, oh. you look at where, how they are, where their hands are. So they're called boxers, okay? So when they're approaching you, sort of, you're looking at. Right. Then later I learned, actually, they were called boxers because the whole of residence where they lived was built like, was a new one whereas all the others were built in imitation of Oxford and Cambridge. This one actually was literally like a box, you know, the the modern building with four corners and so on. So it was called the box, right? So the residents were called boxers. You know, so you are new, you think they're actually boxers, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So the Black Hermit brought in Asian students uh, white students were there, and black African students who were there, okay? So that was actually very, very... Uh, in fact, the lead role of the black mother in the black hermit was played by a Asian girl, Susie Tharu, uh, Susie woman, but now a very big professor in India. Hmm? But there's another boxer called Pat Creole, Creole Rees, and she wrote to me recently, I think two weeks ago actually, uh, uh, from, she now a grandmother, so it's very interesting. Uh, Pat Creole, Creole Rees was in charge of costumes and scenery. She had auditioned for the role of Jane, one of the white characters, and Remy, an African, their friends. Okay you know, Remy's girlfriend in the city. But in real life, she, Pat, was dating Agad who was, for, uh, who was uh, playing the major role, or the, the, not the major, the, the main male character. Because they were close in real life, I assumed that they would find more easily the extra time for rehearsals on their own the passion of private life would somehow rub off on the public show it just didn't work on the stage she was really quite a wooden actor uh and you know and this was deep into the hearts so it became very clear she would not, never be able to carry it off It'll, the whole play is going to collapse And yet passion between them was necessary to explain why Remy is so emotionally wedded to the city as to forget his ties to the village. There may have been a lot of chemistry between them in real life, but there was not the slightest chemistry between them as actors. So I brought in Cecilia Poyle, an English student who was visiting. She was a I would be teacher who was in my career for an orientation program in the education department. Taking the role away from PAD brought production to a standstill. She cried and threatened to withdraw for the production team altogether. John was in a dilemma. He couldn't he couldn't very well show too much enthusiasm for Cecilia, and at one time he threatened to withdraw which would have killed the entire production. I put my foot down. It was terrible. But this was a case where, for all, had to take precedence over for one. I suspect that even John could see that Pat could not quite do it. He was half-hearted in his thrust to withdraw. To accredit credit, Pat accepted the ine- inevitable. And she never let the incident interfere with her work on costumes and scenery. She devoted all her energies to ensuring that all the other parts of the project held together. She was a team player through and through. But she had the last word on me. Actually, <laughs> one day I went to the set with her to help her identify materials she needed to buy for the play. She went into a store to check on something, and I waited for her outside. Now, one of Kabaka, Kabaka was the king of Uganda, and he had another, he had a police force of his own, apart from the British one, okay? So, one of Kabaka's policemen stopped me and demanded that I show evidence of having paid local government poll taxes. He clearly mistook me from Uganda. And my attempts to explain myself made matters worse. I remembered a similar incident in Kenya after high school, which had landed me in a remote prison and then in a court. It's described my book in the House of Interpreter. But then at that moment, as he was about to handcuff me and take me away, at that moment, then Pat came out of the shop. The policeman saluted and asked, Madam, is this your servant? She said yes. <laughs> 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 and he let me go. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to read one more. Uh, yeah, one more piece and then you have questions or I might read another one depending on the time. Okay. One of the most important things that happened in uh, in my career, my time, was a famous conference. Called, it's called the 1962 conference of African writers of English expression. This conference literally brought together. Uh, the, Writers who were then known and who had published, like Chinua Achebe or Soinka, people who had become very, very important, you know, in the African literary scene. You know, there were others who were in prison in South Africa, but their work was represented at the conference. Okay. Now the reason I mention this is because I was invited, li- literally, on the basis of two of my short stories. Okay. But without. Them knowing it, I had already actually written two novel manuscripts that later became The River Between and Weep Not Child. But on paper, I had only two short stories, my credit. So it was a very, very important conference for me. Now, among the dignitaries who came were actually Langston Hughes was there. Yeah Langston, Hughes, and, uh, yeah Langston Hughes and yeah Langston Hughes and there's some others uh, Solar's Reading who was a very well known critic you know here you know uh, and uh, others from the Caribbean were there now let me see whether I can get the section which I want to read to you uh, oh oh how about I don't lose, I didn't lose it Okay. Yeah, I think so. So I want to read my first encounter and the last encounter actually with Langston Hughes. Now again, you have to understand that I know he's a big man of letters, you know. Uh, but then I was not aware how central he was in Harlem Renaissance. Okay. Yeah. All I know, he's a very big writer from my career, from my, and he has asked me to show him around Kampala. So here I was imagining how I want to assume the the most modern, you know, I don't know, sort of, um, Kampala had very incredible, sort of, had great architecture in terms of churches and cathedrals and, you know, and they were all, you know, Kampala is built really literally on seven hills or, and it's not often compared with Rome, built on so many hills, okay? So, this is my experience with Langston Hughes, Okay. Uh, Langston Hughes asked me to take him on a tour of the city. Me? Take this icon on a tour of the city I loved? I tried to map out the route. Hmm. Where to start? <sighs> With what I loved. Kampala is the anglicized form of Akasazi Kampala the hill of the Impala, originally uh, like you know, yeah, not not the bad, but uh, originally the royal hunting ground of the kings of Uganda, a continuous lineage going back to the 13th century. The British delivering echoing the seven hills on which Rome was built. Uh, well, no, we're deliberately echoing the seven hills on which Rome was built, when they touted Kampala as also built on seven hills on which monuments to history were erected. The Catholic uh, Saint Mary's Cathedral, known as Lubaga Cathedral, on Lubaga Hill, literally facing the Protestant Saint Paul's Cathedral on Namirebe Hill, between them was Mango Hill, on which lay the palace of the Kabaka, or the king, king of the Buganda. And Kasubi Hill, where, which housed the royal tombs of the kings. From atop Kibuli Hill, shown minarets of the Muslim mosque. Namirembe, Lubaga, Kasubi, and Mango tell the colonial history of Uganda. Since the 19th century, they had been sites of bloody power struggle, among Islam, Catholics, and Anglicans for the domination of the Ugandan soul. What I feared as I mapped this route were the stories of the remnants of that history of blood. Older Kenyan students claimed that once, walking back to Makere from Mengo at night, they had passed through old Kampala, the site of fierce battles between the colonial factions Franza and Inglesa when suddenly in the dark they found a band of skeletons barring their way. The students took flight. The bones followed them to the gates of a There were variations on this story, the scene changing sometimes to Namgongo Shrine, to the 22 Ugandan martyrs burned to death by the order of the Kabaka Mwanga II in 1987. So the story kept on varying, yeah. The encounter between the West and, and Africa in the court of the Kabaka had always captured the imagination of my career students. Yeah. So I thought I would spare Langston Hughes stories of blood, matters and ghosts. I would show him palaces, cathedrals, mosques, Baha'i temple, and other monuments to the modern in elegant residential areas of Nakasero and Kololo. Mulago Hospital attracted researchers from all over the world. A lot, I thought, to feed the eyes and ears of Langston Hughes. Not knowing how I was going to accomplish all this with uncertain public transport, we walked down the hill and turned left on Macrare Hill Road to Wandegaya, a slum area called Wandegaya, where I hoped would catch a taxi or a bus to the center, the real place of Wanda. Wandegaya, this slum area, literally Next of the college was a run-down area with a cacophony of sounds from a multitude of artisans hammering scrap iron and aluminum into different shapes to make household utensils from human voices of ragged trousered clients in and out of numerous tiny bars that sold matoke. It's a kind of food made from... Um, by the way, plantain, beer and warag is hard liquor, and still hard liquor. It was people you know, drinking, and others are uh, well. You'd. And everywhere, radios were blaring a melody so captivating that even those of us who did not know Luganda could still hum it, and mumble the words. Uh, I won't repeat them. Uh, the song itself is, it was called Talanta Yange, a popular song by the singer Elo Wamala. In which a daughter pleads with her father to let her marry the man of her choice, he may be poor, and like all the rich suitors her father brings to her, but he's the choice of her heart, her destiny, so she sings even though, even though you still bring forward those with lots of money for me, this the only one I want. Let me embrace my destiny it's a very it's a very very captivating. Melody, somehow, this milling crowd, its wails and shouts and ribald laughter, and the voice of Eliwa rising above them seemed to fascinate Langston Hughes, and little no talk of monuments would dislodge him from there. In fact, in his casual wear, he blended into the scene more easily than I did. With my gray garban trousers and black blazer, the way used to. <laughs> okay. He tasted the locally brewed beer Kodwaragi, just a sip, and matoke, just a little taste. And as for one hour that we roamed from shop to shop, one pile of goods to another in the open air street market, bumping against one drunk and another. He seemed more interested in the absorbing the atmosphere of harmony and dissonance that surrounded us, perhaps reminding him of his work, which he had just recently published, as Your Mama, Twelve Moods of Jazz." Strange, I thought, as we walked back for the in- evening sessions. The slum had actually similarly fascinated me, and I signed my early articles, for the student newspaper as the one correspondent, the signature I have to use in my write-up on Langston Hughes and the conference. Yeah. So my encounter, it's, its really amazing for me. It's a big lesson see this big writer who so much at home <laughs> in sort of, you know, with with the locals, without sort of, not big hotels, nothing fancy, and like that very much. Do we have time for one more, event? Okay. Um, I'm going to do one more scene from theater. And even time I do, to get a sense of how I wrote my first play, my first short story, okay? Because the book is really about writing. You know, uh, n- So, I'll try another theater piece, okay, uh, if I can find it right there, it it's here, yeah, now this is another, you know, another boxer, but this one, she was an English boxer, okay one of the few English boxers on the hill, and she was a member of my team, uh, but she was just read the scripts, she was more the, the I don't know the name you give, a person who reminds others, you know, what do, and that kind of, yeah, not quite so much, more script manager, if I might, I don't know, <laughs> uh, so we said by readings, remember I don't have your really experience of theatre, right? i I was an assistant director of one of the plays uh, organized by one of the Americans who had come there, uh, and now this I am in charge of this one. Readings I reviewed weaknesses in the in the text. I tweaked the script constantly. Kathy Sood, oh yes, she was. Sood, the secretary of the production, played a daily. Uh, role in continuing revisions of the script. She became an editor, dramatage, and keeper of records. Kathy was the only Ink boxer in the department. Actually, she was the second of two or three white students in the history of the department. The, you know, uh, the previous one, one from Australia, and of course, uh, but after the, after the American invasion. There are many more white students, okay? But she was the only member of the English department. She was a year behind me in the honors program, small in stature, with bright blue eyes. She was always very, very quiet, actually very shy. That's why what she did on one afternoon seemed crazily, out of character. We are looking at a section of the script where Remy is addressing his followers. And they keep on cheering him widely, calling him uncle, uncle. First, she asked me, why do, they, why, do they, why do they call him uncle? He can't be their relative, all of them. Or is it an honorific title? part of the African extended family system. She's asking me, really genuinely puzzled. I realized she probably did not know, she did not attend the main student association assemblies, where the slogan was used freely. Especially when a speaker makes a good point, and the audience once once repeated, they shout, Anko, Anko, I explained. Cassie burst out laughing, barely laugh. She wiped of tears. I wondering who's so funny about a common slogan. Finally, she calmed down enough to say, "Uncle, uncle is French for again." <laughs> well, it was my turn to laugh. I had only assumed that the students were calling out "uncle." Though I could never figure out why, <laughs> but I had rationalized it by thinking of the children's game in which the victor forces the fallen to cry, Uncle.
1: <laughs> so I
0: assumed the audience had felt em- em- overpowered by the speaker. So eventually I crossed out Uncle and put encore. <laughs> okay? <laughs> That's a little so snippet over yeah. Do you still have time? Oh, okay, yeah. So, um, let me now try a section where I do my first play. When you read the memoir, what do you find that I do try to capture, and I don't have the time, I try to capture how it felt for me to do my first play, how it felt for me to write my first novel, how the ideas come to me, right? So, in that section, it's more like a writer's memoir. You know, for people who have written, they will recognize many of the sensations, how the ideas come, how you draw from people you know. Maybe you are a little old incident that have, that have um, been part of your life and so on. But in the imagination, they change and become something bigger and so on. But how I started on my, uh, on my actual writing of fiction was through... Uh, Oh yes, I got it here. Yeah. There was a student magazine at Macker called Pen Point. Very famous. Like another one which produced Wallace Wenka another in Nigeria, uh called The Horn in Ibadan. There's a parallel magazine in East Africa called uh Pen Point. And when I was I'm new there in activity, I found this magazine this Writers, still writers, and they look, oh my God. They can recite like beautiful stories. How do they do it? Okay? And then it so happened, um so this pen point I reawakened. I desired to write that I had felt when I was in school, but never quite realized it, okay? And then one day I come face to face with one of those famous student writers of the magazine. His name is Jonathan Carriera. He's from Kenya. And he literally was one of the magazine luminaries. Okay, So I stood there in awe. I wanted to talk with him, Father, but I didn't know what to say. Talk of one mouth drying up. Then we went to our different places. I feeling that there was something, whatever I should have said, but didn't. Yeah. This is what happened. Let me just explain this. What happened is that when I first met him, uh, uh, he introduced himself. And I didn't read really at the time. I was a first-year student or so second-year academic. But my, my essays, critical essays, were being read to senior, honor students by the professor. I don't know how to write a critical essay. But I did not know this was going on, okay? So when I first met Carrera, he's telling me oh, also you are the Gogie we hear so much about. Huh? And then he tells me what was happening and I was puzzled, okay? But anyway here I encounter him and a few days later I bumped into him outside the main hall. I couldn't pass up an opportunity. I blotted out the first words from my mouth. Excuse me, Carriera um, I have written a short story. Would you like to would you like to care to look at it? Yes, give it to me anytime, he said without any hesitation, and left. After a few steps he stopped and looked back. Do you have it with you? Oh, oh, I am, uh, I'm, I'm actually putting on the finishing touches tomorrow, perhaps. Then he said, oh, take your time. I should have said that I had been thinking about writing. Rather than that I had started doing it, I had transformed a vague desire into a fact that had yet to be actualized. I must now produce the fact. (laughs) Otherwise how would I face him the next time? I went back to my room in Northcourt and immediately began the draft of my first short story ever. It's called The Fig Tree. It's the story of a woman in a polygamous household, a victim of domestic violence. She's childless. This would seem to be the problem between husband and wife. My character cannot take it anymore, and she decided to leave him. I was able to capture the senseless violence I'd seen in my father's house against my mother years ago. I wrote feverishly. I had not realized that I still carried the heaviness of the past. It was a relief when it all came out. Kareela read the draft, returned it, and praised the quality of the writings, but also talked about the difference between an episode and a story. I merely described an event. You cannot simply say, Oh, I went to Los Angeles and back. What happened there? Oh, said to uh, What happened there and why? Did the experience change the character in any way, even in a small way? He talked of irony, change, the invisible logic behind fiction where nothing happens by chance or coincidence. So the woman is beaten. She runs away so hard, right? Uh, I went back and worked on it. Not one draft by several. The woman still runs away. But finds refuge under a fig tree, a sacred fig tree, where she seems to undergo some kind of spiritual experience. But in reality, she simply realizes that she is already pregnant. Does she go away for good? But where to in a society where life is lived in close communion with the land and the community? Return, give the new life she carries in her, She opts to return, hoping that this time the marriage will work. Though the story and the domestic violence are based on my experience at home, there are important departures from the biographical. My mother had children, six in all, and when she finally left my father and went back to her father's place, she never, ever returned. The fictional resolution of the conflict is not satisfactory, for it is not clear that anything has really changed on the part of the man, but I put a lot of, a lot into the evocation of the land, the spiritual transformation and a sense of self, in a sense of, in a sense of, uh, a sense of s- implying that the woman's self-knowledge may make her assert herself more in the relationship. The fig 3, my first ever short story, appeared in Penpoint number 5, December 1960. Uh, my first year, uh, no, I think I'm beginning the se- second year. No, first year as a student. Uh, and so it's a very, very important piece. And I continue to publish stories in Penpoint, six in all, enough for me to have actually started looking into the puzzle Publication in book form. And, and I remember, I won't go into the details here, you're going to read it. I remember sending my short stories to some publishing house in London, I think, I don't know even where I got that. Jonathan Cape, I think, yeah, and a few others. And of course, you know, um, <laughs> I got my first rejection slip. But one of them did actually say, uh, not, uh, not generic, but I did say, but if you ever write a novel, let us see it. Yeah, we can't publish it, but we don't think there's a market for it. But if you ever write a novel, let us see it. And that one is the one which later led me in trying my first hand at a novel which... Uh, Later was published as the River Between. Thank you. <laughs> hmm. yeah. Yeah.
1: Do you have, uh, like to ask a few questions? Yeah. Well, writing about your own life many decades ago, are you remembering it all in your head? Are you looking back at your own writings? Are you? Uh, that
0: actually no, I mean let me just let oh. me okay, let me try try.
1: Right. <laughs>
0: Power. Huh? <laughs> uh, hello? Okay. Oh. <laughs> yeah. That was a hard I've had three experience in writing in writing memoirs. The first one was my childhood memoir. Dreams in a time of war. That one, in some ways, was easier to write because the memories of childhood—it's memories of childhood are really imprinted in all our minds, you know. And um, and I'm very, I'm very convinced that each person has a book of childhood in them. Every person who is here, you have a book. I'm sure you must have others, but at least you have a book of childhood. Because memories are always very sharp, because. Whatever happened to you as a child, the first insult or out of love or rejection, it becomes imprinted eh, in the mind. So it's, so it's easy to remember, not all the details, but vaguely. Yeah. Uh, in my second memoir, uh, I was very lucky. In the high school, when I went to the headmaster, he used to keep a log of events. He was very meticulous. So many years later, I visited school, and the headmaster then, another one, showed me the log. So my memories, I was able to fit that one. When people read that one in the house of the interpreter, they asked me, oh, you have a very good memory. How do you remember all these dates? (laughs) Because I could even talk about a a date, and and it was a Friday evening, because it's all (laughs) in the log, the dates. The events, yes, I could now. But I could put a date to some of those events, you know. Uh, McKerry one, this one was harder to write. Uh, it's, I thought it would be the one which, because there's so much drama in uh, my life, you know, at this time, okay, you know. You know, new life, you know, McKerry being to write, all these things happening to me. Uh, the fight of a national defense in Kampala. The story is told here how we had to fight to get a space at national theater in Kampala. But I did not know that this would be a rehearsal of what would happen to me many years later in Kenya when through theater I'm put in prison for a year at maximum security prison in Kenya, right? But we've done some of those things in Kampala, you know. So many things are happening. So I thought when I came to this section it would be the easiest. Because so much drama, writing new books and so on. And it's, it's, actually, it's quite hard writing this one, you know, more than the other two. Um, but then I decided to choose the angle of just the process of writing itself, how I came to write, and the many things that impinged on that process. Of writing, you know. So, through this memoir, I tried an angle, right? And the angle was really how the awakening of a writer and the various things that happened, you know. And the main theme in this particular memoir is really the question of how drama came to impact my life and my career. But I never knew that the same drama would later impact my life in general, including prison and exile, and probably the reason why actually I am here this evening if I look at the trajectory of my life and so on. Now, major events I can remember, but there are some others which and you see from the memoir where I have to ask people, do you remember this? Like some of the students who were acting in a play like, Susie Tharu, who is now a professor in India, she sent me some of the pictures here. You know, another one who is at Cambridge. You know, uh, Nancy. You know, wrote a lot. of, th- She could remember many events, so she wrote me a few things. You know, uh, memories of the place. So, I was able to harness memories of other people as well. Okay, in writing these memoirs, uh, and finally, I have developed an approach. Which arises from my new conception. You may not know my book. I have got a a book called, you know, uh, which is my theory of uh, the politics of knowing. The process: how do we, how do we know things? And then I come to realize each one of us carry the world. You know, we carry history. We carry the whole space. So that at any one moment, even like we are in this hall, even our if we were to hear each of the stories where we, each person comes from and so on, you know, oh, we'd cover the whole world. We'd have to go to Romania, in fact, you know. huh? Right? Correct? And Sierra Leone? Right? Yeah, you know. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's amazing how we are, each one of us, we are a point. We are center of the world in so many ways, you know, and you can find how you are impacted, part of the clothes you wear or whatever. You have to trace where they come from or anything else. So, But you, any particular point can be a point from which you explore the world, but it can also be a point at which you look at the impact of the world uh, all new, okay. So in this memo, for instance, there's what's happening to me in Kampala is one circle, writing and a place and so on. But there are things which are happening politically within Uganda and East Africa, that's a circle. But then a circle, what's happening in the continent as a whole. But is that fourth circle, what's happening in the world, you know, and for the assassination of Kennedy, became a very big thing in our time. There, so the politics of, of America became very important to us in talking and so on. Vietnam, War becomes important, you know, uh, in, um, in our lives in Macau. The invasion of Macau by uh, uh, American students, who play a very very big role in terms of changing the feel of the campus and so on. It's another world, you know, that they brought into uh, Makere. And I try to use my being my Makere to see the different streams that have impacted my life and which impacted the process of my creativity. Yeah. Yeah. Yes? Uh,
1: Thank you. Um, the freshness of your writing and the immediacy of your experiences, is, huh? it's almost astonishing to... One can even feel the atmospherics of the excitement of being one of the young educated elites coming up at the tail end of colonialism and the excitement of independence and Mm the the succus and the music and the ballroom dancing and this contradiction between Western cosmopolitanism and Mm the nationalist kind of um, vernacular being reinvested with independence. All of this is, is at the center of your life and yet you teach now in an academy where uh, post-colonial studies and post-colonial theory has um, a certain trajectory within the English departments and comparative literature departments. How do you honestly feel when you read the, uh, I'll use the term intentionally, the pos- various positionalities that get invoked and developed by uh, you know, some of the um, scholars today in this field, who have no experiential connection to the kinds of uh, history that Mm -hmm. inspired you to write about decolonizing the mind and really Mm -hmm. setting this whole paradigm into motion. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm struck by your modesty and your humility, and I just want to say that when you talk about being in awe in the presence of Langston Hughes, well, you don't realize that we're in awe by being in the presence of
0: No, I mean, it's it's, it's so memorable for me, you know, really. And I appreciate your sentiments. Uh, In particular, post-colonial theory, what happened, first of all, it's very difficult difficult to describe that moment of transition from colonial to independence. And when you felt a new world was coming to be, you did not know what that world was, but there was something that was being born. And now, actually, when I look back, actually at that period, I can see why. You know, because if I might just 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 try a few dates, quite you know, or events, least around the nineteen fifties. For instance, you know, in the world, India independence nineteen forty seven, Chinese revolution 1948. 1950 I was. Korean War. There's Malaysian insurrection at about the same time against the British, okay? That's in that part of the world. You come to the Caribbean, uh, working people's movements and so on, you know. uh, uh, You come to America, you know, the, 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 the Rosa Parks incident happens when, 1950 or something? You go to the Caribbean, the Cuban Revolution, uh, you know, then in Africa, Ghana became independent in 1957, so all these are, these things are happening. And now looking back, I realize this was just a moment in some of momentous happening in the world. Of course, when you are there, you think it's happening to you, but literally that energy is really coming from that... Her- Let's call it movement, you know, uh, in history. So I've been very lucky in so many ways to have been part of that. You should have been in my career in 1962 to see these young writers, Wallace you know, Achebe, Kofi Awuna, you know, and, and others. And we're talking about those uh, South African writers who are then in prison, Alessandra Guma, Dennis Brutus, and so on, you know, uh, and Langston Hughes being there, and you know, that energy <laughs> is. Uh, very, very impo- important. But I've been part of other movements, not intended that there be a movement. Uh, for instance, that energy of challenge, that uh, you you feel you can do, you can change the world, more or less, is also what prompted me when I started teaching at the University of Nairobi, in where I was. I am I come from Leeds, you know, I had two or three books to my credits, for novels, and so on. I'm a young lecturer in a department, which is teaching literature in the same old way of English national literature, and in 1968, I'm actually only a year there, <laughs> fresh f- professor and otherwise, not even a professor, we call him lecturer at the time, and, and I'm looking at all this, and I said, no. This is, I don't know what came to us. I no, this, we can't look at the world with English literature at the center of our world. Okay? We have to look at literature differently, to be organized differently. We can't have literature simply from Spencer to Spender or, you know, or from Beowulf to Virginia Woolf or whatever. You have to, look at literature differently in terms of how you organize it. And that's why in 1968 I was among three of us, who called for the abolition of the English department, right, and to have that, I'm telling you, it's, very difficult to describe. it's like the whole world, <laughs> you know, it's never been done before, nobody had ever questioned the primacy of English literature in Africa, the way it was organized, and here we are saying it should be abolished. abolished, uh, abolished Shakespeare, <laughs> Actually, what we were saying at the time, if I just took out to your question, was that you can organize literature if you're in Africa, then African literature has to be at the center. Then you bring in other literatures, including European literature, Asian literature, Latin American literature. So, actually, it's not too much to claim that actually whole post-colonial movement was actually has origin in Nairobi of the 1999. Uh, because we're the first department to change the department of literature, but even then, we put African literature at the center, Caribbean literature, African, we're the first department to actually teach African American literature as a course at the university, <laughs> and Caribbean literature as well, and African literature, but he also had English literature, with Asian literature, all that's part of that whole package. You am i to tell you one more thing. I don't, ironic. Just, I'll be very, very brief this time. I'm a storyteller, but I can't help you telling it. <laughs> I've just been, I'm going to, my wife and I are going to South Korea because we got a prize. Let me, let me, let me just tell you because. going to a Oh, oh, okay. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh. No, okay, announce it, and then i tell you. I would like to... Then i tell you what. Then yeah. for winning the Six-Pak young ni Literature Award in Korea. Yeah.
1: Uh, okay.
0: Uh, uh. <laughs> but I, let me mention this because in connection to your question, actually, there's a connection. What happened, I discovered later. I, when they gave me the prize, I was thinking, oh, uh, who is this, who is this, um, pack? You know, then I checked. <laughs> uh... And I found she of course wrote a famous novel. I've not read it yet, called "The Land," or Taji or Toji." okay She's the most of famous writers there. But in a personal way, she was the mother-in-law of Kim Ji-Ha. Kim ji ha is a South Korean poet. And I was once in Japan, I think 1975, I don't remember when it was. When there was a conference in Japan on the democracy reunification of Korea, because they divided North and South, okay? And I was at Tokyo bookshop, and all the books were in Japanese and so on. I wanted to read a book, so I got a book of poems, one by Kim Ji Ha, Cry of the People. But when I at the conference, he was also sort of subject of discussion there, because he was then in prison. For his writings under the Pak dictatorship of the time, right? Now, I took Kim chiha back to Nairobi and I put him in the syllabus, in the Asian section of the syllabus, became a text to be studied along with other literary products from Asia, rough, you know, you select selectively. Now, this is when two things happened. One, some students started performing one of, his, one of his poems, turned them into a play, and it was stopped by the Kenyan government following the stoppage of my own play, right? And the students were expelled. So Kim Ji-ha, an expulsion. Of <laughs> but I myself, when I went to commit Committee maximum security prison because of my writing in I decided to stop writing in English and writing a Korean language for the first time, a novel. And I'm in maximum security prison. And Kim mm-hmm. Ji has, he has another poem called The Five Bandits, which I liked very much. And The Five Bandits, is one is a general, the other one is a minister of finance, and you know, where they meet in each other's houses to boast, to brag how they are has stolen so much from the Korean people or whatever, I mean, but roughly, it's a very interesting, it's still, you can Google it actually, The Five Bandits. Uh, Now, so, I'm in prison, I'm thinking of Kim Ji-ha, and and this inspires me to write the first ever novel in a cool language that came under the title, Devil on the Cross, right? And this literally is the starting point of my own writings. Like I started writing all together anew. I went to the same place I went through in my career, but now in prison, writing now in the co language, okay? Yeah, yeah. Well, toilet paper. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's there. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> On toilet paper. So, uh, So, so you, I'm trying to show you the connections, you know. So when I got this award, I said, wait a minute, this is incredible. Huh? that this is a mother-in-law of oh Kim Jiha, yes. <laughs> right, who had this kind of impact on Kaya literature, right? And I might probably even meet him when I go there. He's still, he's very much alive, so I'm hoping to meet him when he, my wife and I go there in November, November or October, yeah. So, but this should show you the connections, really, and the, the post-colonial, and how, important Nairobi really was and people are beginning to recognize how important Nairobi was in the whole movement of post studies and later post theory. Nairobi. Yeah, all the time. So I've been lucky in being sort of <laughs> being at some places or <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. And she has a very interesting story. Herself. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Can you tell them your name please? And
1: Sierra uh, mm. yeah. Leone.
0: But uh, at the beginning of your
1: presentation you said that um you were nervous You're So I
0: was just wondering how do you feel and how does it sound to you how you really all enjoyed it. Oh you've enjoyed it i very good I'm, I always bring my wife because later she tells me <laughs> 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 <coughs> how it went. But it's good to hear that you really enjoyed that really. I appreciate. It's very it's like all of you have written you know how the feeling is. The you live with the work. For a year or two years, three years, you know uh, I read little bits and pieces to my wife, you know she 's my first critic, you know, and uh, she's a very f- very cri- critical critic <laughs> 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 and then you you see it in a book and now you're reading it from it for the first time. it feels something, but i'm glad you enjoyed it yeah and i hope hope you enjoy it more when you actually read it yeah. Yes, uh. we
1: did.
0: Um, thank you so very much, mm-hmm. thank you very mm-hmm. so okay. very
1: much. Just to let you know that full cycle, I went to the University of Nairobi and studied African Literature just for a semester. I have your old books with me, wow. and that influence and that movement really inspired me
0: to be the person I am today. Oh, thank oh, you, I appreciate it. Yeah, you. Okay. You. yeah. You. yeah. Yes, you. I, I appreciate it. Yeah. Um,